sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can be seated. We are continuing our series through the book of Genesis. For the rest of this semester, we will... We will walk all the way through the end of chapter 11 of Genesis, and then we're going to take a break for Christmas time. We'll do an Advent series, and then starting back in the spring semester in January, we will return to Genesis 12. Now, so far in our Genesis series, we've been taking a big picture or bird's eye view approach to the book, especially in Genesis chapter 1. We We looked at creation from a distance because that's exactly how Moses, the author of Genesis, presents creation to us, from from a distance, this big picture view. Last week, Avery focused on the creation of mankind as the special image of God. So he sort of kick-started this hyper-focus on mankind in the place that God made for them. Now, over the next four weeks, we're going to be zooming in on how the first humans initially related to God, how they initially related to him in the Garden of Eden. So from Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through the end of chapter 3, we learn about what happened to God's very good creation. Do you remember at the end of Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 31, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And then we we see in the first three verses of chapter 2 that the Lord rested from his work. He's fully satisfied in the work of his hands. And so now we get to see over the next few weeks 
what came to be of this good creation, specifically related to the people that God created. Genesis 2, 14 through 17 serves as an introduction to this next section. Now, we're taking this approach, this, this hyper-focused approach, because we believe that's what the author of Genesis is doing. If, if you look with me at verse 4 of chapter 2, it serves as a transitional verse between chapter 1 and the creation account and what comes next. So it says in chapter, or chapter 2, verse 4, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So there's a couple things to notice about this transitional phrase. First, you notice this, this phrase is introduced, these are the generations of. These are the generations of. That phrase is going to be repeated nine more times throughout the book of Genesis. It is a prominent theme. It is a marker. It is a signal that something new is about to begin. There's a new section. It clearly marks it off. And so now we are about to focus on something else. But what else? Well, we're given a clue here. Um, at the end of chapter four, or verse 4, do you notice how the phrase the heavens and the earth is inverted? L look at it with me. So these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made, and you would expect the heavens and the earth, but we don't, we don't find that. We find the earth and the heavens. So, so why, why the switch? Is it just a typo? You know, did Moses forget what he had done before? Well, of course not. I mean, in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's familiar with that phrase. It's an intentional use of, of language to, to emphasize the whole cosmos, you know. By switching it up, he's letting us know that what comes next is going to be a hyper-focus on not the whole universe, but the earth itself. This, the specific focus on the earth itself. And so this morning, we're going to begin discussing what life with God was like for the first humans who dwelled in this place called Eden. Now, in Genesis 2, I was talking to, to one of our members from the first service. We could, we could do an entire sermon series on Genesis 2. We, we could do you know, a year's worth of sermons on Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. There is so much here. There are so many questions. Just that little section from verse 10 to verse 14, where you have all these places and names and rivers, like, it, it causes you to think, like, where is this today? Where would it be today, you know? Um, this, this land that has all this gold, it's like, hey, man, is that, is that place still here? Think we could go, like, on an expedition, get some gold? I don't know. You know, we have all these questions about what Eden was like, and we're going to answer some of them. But what we're going to focus on primarily is what Eden was like for that initial couple in connection to their relationship with God. And, and I want us to think about that. What would life have been like for us in the Garden of Eden? What was it like for this first couple? And the reason we ask that is because the description that we get here is so different from the reality that we experience today. Honestly, one reason we're, we're going back to Genesis this semester is because 2020 has been so rough. We're like, let's just go back to year one, you know? Let's see if we can just like flip the script and just go back to the very beginning and, and see what it was like then. It is healthy for us, though, to reflect on, to think about what it was like in the very beginning before sin entered the world. And there may be some clues here for how we need to be living now, even in this broken, sinful world. In fact, the reason that life is the way it is now 
the reason that there's sorrow and pain and sickness and conflict and hunger and poverty and death is because we no longer live in Eden. We no longer live in this glorious place that we see in Genesis chapter 2. We live in exile. And we'll get to what exile means in chapter 3. But the original humans knew nothing of sorrow or sickness or sin or death. This morning, I want us to focus on the nature of Adam, the first man's relationship with God. How was he supposed to live with God? What was the nature of that relationship supposed to be like? And then I want us to see how it connects to us today. So three things I want to share with you this morning. I believe there are three ways of life that are shared here in Genesis 2 that may inform us on how we can live our lives now. And it's awesome. If you're a Baptist, you know, or if you come from a Baptist background, you know, you're going to love this so much. Um, We have three points. Are you ready? Here we go. In the Garden of Eden, people lived in God's presence. All right? In the Garden of Eden, people lived in God's presence. The second way of life that we're going to talk about, in the Garden of Eden, people lived by God's provision. Oh, you see where it's going. So in the Garden of Eden, people lived in God's presence. In the Garden of Eden, people lived by God's provision. And third, in the Garden of Eden, people lived out God's purpose. Ah, Nice, right? Yeah, three Ps. All right, good. (laughs) Presence, provision, and purpose. All right? In the Garden of Eden, this is what God's people were called to do. They were called to live in his presence, live by his provision, and live out his purpose. Let's, Let's talk about these one by one first. In the Garden of Eden, people were meant to live in God's presence. Now, I hope you notice... There is a significant shift between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And it's not just if you had to, you know, flip the page in your Bible. We see this shift expressed in two ways. First, there is a hyper-focus on the earth, especially the third and definitely sixth day of creation. So if you, if you look at the initial verses in our passage this morning, from verse 4 through verse 7, um, all the way through verse 8, really— you get this picture of God and what he was doing on day six of creation, for instance. It's a hyper, hyper focus. So it's a shift from this, here's what happened on day one, then day two, then day three, kind of like rapid fire in Genesis one, to now there's this like slow progression. Yes, God created man in his image, but here's what it looked like. Here's a description of it. Um, But second, what we see, this noticeable shift, that God, who in chapter one, is presented as majestic and transcendent and all-powerful and so far beyond us we could never hope to reach him, is now presented as imminent and near and close and loving and personal. And we see this in a few ways. First, we're given a new name for God. Now, you might, you might glance over this really quickly and not even notice it at all. But look with me, for example, in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. God. In the Hebrew, it's the word Elohim. Okay? And so over 30 times in Genesis chapter 1, we see God, 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 over and over and over again. And every single time, it's Elohim. When you get to chapter 2, starting in verse 4, look with me at the end of verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God 
And now, I don't know if this is how it is in your Bible, but in my Bible, the word Lord is in all caps. Is it in all caps in your Bible? Yeah, that signifies the name Yahweh, which is the personal, covenantal name of the Lord. So there's this shift. He goes from being this all-powerful creator God to a very personal, relational, covenantal God in in chapter 2. Another shift we see in verse 7. God is not just generally saying, hey, we need to create people. Let's create them in our image. It lets us in on how people were created. Look look at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. It's this intimacy, this closeness. We know the Lord doesn't have hands or feet. He's, he's, he's spirit. But it's, it's language that lets us know that God was intimately, personally involved in creating the first man. So he's very near. Another example we see. We see God personally involved in the formation of the place where he would live with man. So look at verses 8 and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden. That is so easy to read and just like move on to something else. That blows my mind. Every time I read that. The same God who told the sun to exist, and it existed. The same God who merely said, let there be light, and there was light, plants a garden. I don't know, it's just so unassuming, it's just so ordinary. I mean, we plant gardens, right? I just, I love this language, it just shows how personal God is with his creation, how involved he is in forming this place for the man. He planted a garden, then in verse 9, out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. It's the Lord himself who is springing this stuff up, who is creating it. He is intimately, personally involved, which means that God is close and near. His presence is on full display. And then finally, most striking in verses 16 through 17, we'll get to what the command means in a minute. But what we need to notice is that God speaks directly to the man. You know he didn't have to do that, right? It gets at the nature of God, his presence with it. It says in verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. We'll get to the rest in a minute. But do you see this, how casually it's written here? The Creator God is talking with the man, talking with him, communing with him, which which all tells us God is present with his people. God created people to live with him. That's our purpose. God dwelled with the people he created. The Garden of Eden is the dwelling place of God. Now this is astounding. Because most other religions are not like this. The gods of other faiths, they don't come this close, or they are not so all-powerful. The God of the Bible is unique In Genesis 1 and 2 alone, we learn that God is far beyond his creation. He is transcendent. He is distinct from his creation, and he draws very near to his creation. The all-powerful creator God walks in the midst of a garden that he planted. And he enters into close relationship with his people. He's personally involved with what happens in his creation. The original people experience the fullness of God's presence. And that is what made the Garden of Eden paradise. 
That's why it was paradise. Not the beautiful trees, not the bounty, not, not you know, the, the fact that there's no death or sin or sorrow. What made Eden paradise is the fact that God was there and his people dwelled with him. Every wonderful aspect of the garden was directly connected to the presence of God because God was actively and personally present with his people, they could experience the fullness of joy and contentment and significance. So living in the presence of God is the single greatest privilege of being human. It's not something we deserve. It's not a right. It's a privilege that he grants to us. We were made, quite simply, to be with God. That was true in Eden, and it wasn't just true in Eden. It remains true for us today, even as we live in exile. I, I don't know how often you think about this, but humans are still meant to dwell with God. Living in God's presence is both an objective and subjective reality. It's an objective reality for those who are united to Jesus by faith. You see... Adam and Eve, what we know from the story is that they lost the presence of God. They, they lost access to it because of their sin. They were, they were banished from God's presence and they no longer experienced the fullness of it. But one day, we know that Jesus, God the Son, came and, and John tells us in John chapter 1 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So through faith in Jesus, the presence of the Lord becomes a secured reality. The Lord who came to dwell with us grants us a future where we will get to dwell with him once again. So one day we will experience the fullness of God's presence again because of what Jesus came to do for us. And it's a secured reality for every single person who trusts in Jesus. We will one day dwell with the Lord in fullness. But living in God's presence is also a subjective spiritual experience for those who have faith in Jesus. Okay, so it's not just something that we get to experience one day in the future. It's something we can experience here and now. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, through the coming of the Holy Spirit, God's people are granted access to the presence of God now. That's what we believe happens when we gather in this place. You know, some people think that you have to conjure up the presence of God. You know, if you can create the right, you know, Situation, you can have the right lighting, you can, you know, have the right songs, people singing, maybe people have their hands up and say, Oh, the presence of the Lord, the Lord's moving in this place. And I'm not saying the Lord doesn't move when that happens, he definitely does. But the Lord's presence isn't dependent on circumstances that we create. The Lord is present with his people when they gather. Guys, listen, the Lord is present when there are crying babies. The the Lord the Lord is present. And he is not, it's not like he checked out. He's like, hey, y'all, too loud in there. I'm, I'm done. I'll, I'm going to go to this other church over here. I'll be out. No, the Lord is present with his people. He is pleased, pleased to dwell with his people when we gather for worship in this way. And we believe that he's spiritually present with us now. We believe that our bodies are temples where the Holy Spirit dwells within. And we believe that we abide in Christ. We dwell with him through prayer, through time in the word, and through worship. We believe these are experiences we can actually display. So here, just one takeaway for you. If our discipleship, our, our process of growing in Christ, if our discipleship does not fuel desire for the presence of God, then our discipleship is flawed. 
If the end of our discipleship is just to know a lot more stuff about God tomorrow than we do today, and that's it, it's so limiting and so limited. Discipleship should fuel our desire for the presence of God because that's the end goal. When we are finally in the full image of Christ through sanctification and we are glorified, the end goal is we will be with him. We will be in his presence. So in Eden, people were meant to live in God's presence. But they, they weren't just meant to live in God's presence. They were meant to live by God's provision. So God provided everything for Adam. And then as Eve comes along, Eve as well. Provided everything for this original couple. If you look at verse 7 again, it, it could not be clearer what's happening. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. It's this picture of the Lord taking dust, taking dust from the ground, shaping it, forming it as a potter would, clay, into a beautiful creation. And, and, and that's how he creates mankind. But not only that, he, he doesn't just grant them life that way. The picture is that he breathes life from himself, the source of life. He breathes life into this creature and it becomes a living being. God formed the man from dust. And that reminds us that, yes, we are but dust, you know? I love Ash Wednesday services because, you know, we've never done one here, but they were, they're a reminder of that, that we come from dust and we will once again go to dust. And so that's, it's a good reminder of our, our humanity, our, our limitations, our finiteness. But God breathed life into man, which reminds us that man is the product of divine intentionality and intimacy. The original people were entirely dependent on God for their very existence. And that's a very good reminder for us. You exist because God wanted you to exist. You exist because God intended for you to exist. Which means you are meant to be here. You may not feel that way. Others may tell you otherwise. But the simple fact that you are here, the simple fact that you exist, means God wants you to exist. Otherwise, you wouldn't exist. We are totally dependent on God for our very life. But we're not just dependent on God for our very life. We are dependent on God to sustain every moment of life. So if you look at verses 8 through 14, it's this picture of the Lord providing for this man that he created. He doesn't just like leave the man and say, all right, man, figure it out. Like you're, there's no sin. You're, you're not limited. You can do whatever you want. No, he provides everything for the man. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the side and good for food. He, he gives this man anything and everything that he wants, could ever desire, could ever need, and provides for him in full. This man was wanting for nothing because God took care of his every single need. So God's people originally in the garden, they were created to live in dependence on God. I think sometimes we think that paradise is finally being able to finally be self-sufficient and fully take care of ourselves. You know, that's what we lack now. We try to take care of ourselves, but we're just limited. But if we were in a paradise place, we would have no need of anything because we would be able to take care of ourselves fully. But the picture we get here, true paradise is being fully and totally dependent on God to provide for us. Here's the takeaway for you. 
an abundant and satisfied life is found through simple dependence on God, not obedience. We're getting to obedience next. An abundant and satisfied life is found through simple dependence on God. I don't know how often you think about this, but what do you need in order to be satisfied and content? Have you ever considered it? Maybe you think about it a lot. What do you need to be satisfied and content? What what are you waiting for? You know, we always have that one thing that we lack, that we don't have, and we think if we had it, we would finally be okay. You know, we're a little stressed, we're a little dissatisfied, we're mostly happy. If we had this one thing, we'd be, we'd be filled up. We'd be totally content, we'd be totally satisfied. You know, that feeling of being discontent, that's actually what makes us good workers, you know? Like, like our, our employers, they count on us not being content, not being satisfied. It's like, well, I did a good job, but it really wasn't enough. I wanna take that next step, I wanna go to that next level. And it, it's, what, it's what makes us succeed in life. But it's an endless cycle. It never comes to an end if that's our goal. I was watching the uh, you know, NBA playoffs last night. LeBron James and the Lakers, they, they won. And LeBron goes to his 10th NBA final. And during the like, ceremony, the celebration, the team is standing there. And they're like interviewing all the players. And off in the back, you see LeBron James. He's just sitting on the ground. Sitting on the ground, just off to himself. One of the greatest players to ever play the game. He looked sad. He looked upset, and then he gets to the mic, and he's like, yeah, we're going to enjoy this, but it's not enough. I mean, we've got, we've got to win this next game. We've got to win this championship, but even when he wins the championship, it, it likely won't be enough. It, I've, I've seen him after he wins them. It's, it's not enough. It'll never be enough. There's no contentment, and we feel the same way about our own lives. If we just had more money, if we just were in a different stage of parenting, if we could just have this relationship, if we could just get a raise— we'd be okay. If we could just get life back to normal the way it was, we'll, we'll be okay. And it's a lie. You won't be satisfied then if you're not satisfied now. Do you know what you need in order to be really satisfied? You need God. And you need everything that God provides because whatever God provides is good. Satisfaction comes through contentment with God's provision Everything you have is a gift from the Lord, so there's no need to take or covet what someone else has because we trust that the Lord will provide. An abundant life is not marked by financial or social prosperity. It is found through humble dependence on God. God cares for you. He cares so much for you. Do you see that in this passage? He provides for you. And he's not just trying to get you to heaven so that the limits of sin can finally be lifted and you can finally take care of yourself. Now, we have 10 billion plus years of dependence on God and provision from him ahead of us. He will never stop caring about us and he will never stop providing for us. It was true in Eden and it's true now and it will be true forevermore. Finally, in Eden... People were meant to live out God's purpose. So we were meant to live in God's presence. We were meant to live by his provision. And we're meant to live out the purpose that he's given us. You see, when I think of paradise, I don't know about you, for some reason, I don't know if it's TV or what it is, I just think of like a beach and a hammock, you know? And, and Jimmy Buffett playing in the background. Like, I don't know. It's, 
you just you think of this just paradise you know and and so you're just like relaxing chilling you don't have no responsibility paradise to me like as a parent of three young kids it's just like no responsibility you know just for a minute you know no responsibility nothing to do no one telling me what to do no one counting on me to do anything and that feels like paradise that's not actually paradise though in the garden of eden the original couple they didn't just live in this beautiful place they were given a task they were given responsibility. They had a clear and defined purpose. And that purpose had nothing to do with singing holy, holy, holy over and over again in the garden, okay? They were given clear purposes. And here, I want to share them with you right now. God created people to, to do two things. First, to work the garden. And second, to keep his commands. So first, to work the garden. Literally, the creation of man seems to be the answer to a problem that was present in verses 5 through 6. It was like... There was, there was land that needed to be cultivated, but there was no cultivator. So, let's, so God's like, I'm going to create a man to cultivate this earth. So part of God, or the man's purpose is to cultivate and care for the earth. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, to work it and to keep it. So God put the man in the garden to work and to keep, to guard and to serve. And this work is, is twofold. First, there's the ordinary work of caring for the earth. And, and Adam was called to just be a gardener, to be a cultivator. So, you know, one, one small takeaway there is that it is good to work. And your work, no matter how ordinary or seemingly menial, is meaningful. Because God designed you to work. Work is not a product of the fall. It is a part of God's good creation. But second, this work was also spiritual. So Adam was supposed to serve as a priest in this land. He was supposed to guard the garden from, from evil and sin and anything that would oppose God's purposes. But the final purpose of man in the garden is really the most beautiful, maybe the most surprising. Their purpose was to obey the Lord, to keep his commands. Part of humanity's purpose involved living in covenant relationship with God. God gave his word to the man and expected him to live according to it. Verses 15 through 17, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we talked earlier how, how, how amazing it is that God's even speaking to the man at all, but he's revealing to him the way that he can live a satisfied life in the garden. The heart of this command is not just, hey, I'm going to put this tree up over here just to test you, you know? The heart of it is, trust me to be enough for you. Take and eat from any tree you want, but not from this one. You see, we're prone to think of obedience to God's word as a way for God to keep us from the really good stuff in life. We're afraid that obeying God's word is going to cause us to miss out. Obeying God's word is a part of God's good creation. It's a part of the original design of, of humans. It's not a curse of the fall. It's not stifling. It's not debilitating. It's not enslaving. Keeping the commands of the Lord is the pathway to life. And in fact, Adam's very life depended on his simple trust of the Lord's word. 
So aligning your heart and mind with the will and ways of God is not even a way to earn God's love. It's not like he said, okay, Adam, look, I will love you only if you do this. We've already seen how much God has provided for Adam, how much he has cared for Adam, how much he has loved for Adam. And out of the overflow of that relationship, Adam is to align his life with God's purposes. And the same is true for us. To live out our purpose as humans, we need to align our lives with what God has revealed to us about him in his word. Now, life in paradise was more ordinary and more familiar than we assume. We can learn a great deal from it. It involved simple enjoyment of the presence of God. We can enjoy that now. It involved humble dependence on the provision of God. And it involved resolved fulfillment of the purpose of God. Jesus' death and resurrection actually opened the doors so that we can head back to Eden. Even now, we experience glimpses of Eden every single time we pray. Every time you pray and express your dependence on God, it's like we're back in Eden. Every time you gather for worship, every time that we recognize a kind provision from the Lord's hand, and we thank him for it. It's like we're back in Eden. Every time that we clock in at work and we work to the Lord's glory, every time we obey the word of the Lord, it's like we're back in Eden. But sin ruins that experience. We, we often don't feel the presence of the Lord even though he's very near. We don't see just how much God is providing for us and we think he's so far beyond us or he doesn't care for us. And Work is often painful and monotonous and unsatisfying. And I don't know about you, but there are a lot of times that we don't obey the Lord. That's why a look back into Eden should cause us to long for something more. It should cause us to long for the new Eden. That one day when the earth will be full of the glory of the Lord. That day when the new city garden that the Bible calls the new Jerusalem will descend at the return of Christ. And we will work we will play, we will laugh all to God's glory in his presence. This is the day I'm talking about. John talks about it in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, it's my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This new creation this hope for this new day, it has been inaugurated in Jesus. You want to get in on this? You want to get in on what is awaiting God's people, the full presence of God? You want to go back to Eden, but a greater version? Come to faith in Jesus. He will take you there. Let me pray for us.